that we began last week by beginning tonight in verse 21 of chapter 1, and then we'll continue through verse 11 of chapter 2. So let me read those verses for us. You'll find them on Chairback Bible if you have one in front of you on page 225. So let us listen once again as the Lord does speak to us through his word. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has brought salvation to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and give us a heart that exalts in you tonight, that we, like Hannah of old, would rejoice in your salvation. In Jesus Christ's name, whom we pray, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I was reading these books of spiritual theology, perhaps you could call them, and I was reading a best-selling author uh, that 
was writing about spirituality in the Christian tradition in a very specific genre, and that genre we might call something like spiritual autobiography. It's trying to teach something about the Christian life through the author's experience. And uh, one passage in one of the best-selling books, the author talked about what she referred to as these two most basic and ordinary prayers that belong to the Christian life. So you can think about that for a second. What would be the two most basic and ordinary prayers any Christian might offer to the Lord? The author said the first was, help me, help me, help me. Simple enough. Secondly, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's a pretty eloquent summary, I think, isn't it, of how prayer often goes, Lord, help. And he helps. So what do we do? We return thanks to the Lord. Well, in time, the author realized that there was another category of prayer that went unmentioned with the help and the thanks. And that category was that of awe and adoration, of wonder and reverence towards who the Lord is. And so this very same author published a book that also became a bestseller, simply titled, Help, Thanks, Wow. And help, thanks, wow, it's a quite simple summary, isn't it, of Hannah's piety as we see it in these first few scenes of 1 Samuel that we began last week. Because if you weren't with us, what we saw in the first 20 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1 was this theme, of course, of Hannah's great need. She longed desperately for a child, as any ordinary Hebrew woman at the time would long for offspring. And the Lord had closed the womb twice, the text says. And so she had given herself to asking the Lord in prayer. And we said, even from that theme of asking God, that Hannah's life showed us that we're to ask because we're needy, we're to ask because we're trusting, we're to ask because he's listening. And of course, where we left off last week was God having listened and answered Hannah's prayer. If you glance back to verse 19 and 20, the very end tells us the Lord remembered Hannah, and in due time she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. So the long prayed for blessing of God has finally arrived. And for us tonight, what we want to think about from our text is how Hannah responds to that blessing, because that really is the idea that I want to put before you tonight is responding. To God's blessing. Perhaps you should think about even here at the very outset this evening, what are those blessings that God has given to you? Some of those blessings are sitting next to you, I trust. Perhaps behind you or in front of you. Blessings maybe you left at home on the way here tonight. Blessings of even being in this room. What are those blessings that God has entrusted to you? And how have you responded To those blessings. How have you even responded with the blessings? Because if you glance down again at our text, we see two simple parts, don't we? We first of all see in verse 21 through 28 of chapter 1, it's Hannah's presentation of Samuel to the Lord. And then in the first 10 verses primarily of chapter 2, we see her, her proclamation of the Lord's greatness in this wonderful psalm, this song that she prays forth. So we'll take both of those parts as two simple responses of ordinary, faithful believers to God's blessing. 
The first response is this, respond with dedication. You see again in verse 21 that we're told Elkanah and his household, they were dedicated to the religious worship of God. The text tells us that they went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and Elkanah to pay his vow. Now, we don't know anything actually about Elkanah's vow. Nothing has come in the previous parts of this chapter that Elkanah's made a vow unto the Lord. But students, do you remember? Children, do you remember Hannah made a vow to the Lord? Remember what that vow was? You can glance back to the end of verse 11, uh, this great prayer. Lord, remember my affliction. Give me a son, she says. And then at the end of verse 11, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. It's a vow she's making. You you give me the child God, and I'll give him right back to you. It doesn't have all the outlines of an Old Testament Nazarite vow, but that's probably the right way to think about it, especially as it relates to no razor touching his head. And in the Old Testament, uh, Nazarite vows are normally just a temporary thing. Uh, But for Hannah, we need to realize this vow that she has made before the Lord was a permanent thing. Because if you glance back to our text, verse 22, she says to Elkanah, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him up, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord to dwell there forever. So she was going to dedicate this child, genuinely give him over to the Lord's service for his entire life. And as the text moves on, it tells us that when Samuel was weaned, which in the ancient world tended to happen sometime around the age of three. So a few years after Samuel is weaned, they travel up to Shiloh with the sacrifices. They make the sacrifices. Then Hannah sees the high priest Eli there at the temple in Shiloh in the Lord's house. And you'll notice, verse 27, she reminds him, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And Samuel worshipped the Lord there. So she's responded to God's blessing with a dedication, particularly dedication of a child to the Lord's service. Now I have this a series of letters in my house between a pastor and his mother from many years ago. And this pastor was <clears throat> called to serve the Lord in a church in an urban setting. This pastor was also quite frail in his health from his early age, and so he was placed into this urban setting, and very early after his installation, it became clear that the climate and the realities there in that urban environment were, were doing no, no good things to his health. And the Lord's providence, it was just about that time that another church in a more remote and rural location, an altogether comfortable location, they asked him to come be their pastor. And like a normal young pastor would do, he told his parents about the opportunity to leave the urban environment for the rural environment. And this pastor's mother, seeing what was already going on with her son's health, began to write a series of letters just urging him uh, very strongly and and lovingly to, to leave the urban environment to go to the rural environment. That way he would survive. And he keeps writing back, no, mama, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay right here. The Lord has placed me here until he moves me. I'm not going anywhere. And she keeps writing back. You need to go to the rural parish. You're going to die there in the urban environment. Well, he writes a letter and says, Dear Mama, you must just give yourself over to me dying in the Lord's service. 
Sometimes, parents have a hard time handing children over to the Lord's service. And here's Hannah. So many of you will understand this intimately. From the earliest age saying, I'm going to hand my son over to the Lord's service and I'll see him maybe once a year. Is how the text would go on to tell us in this story. Now, of course, we need to recognize when we think about dedicating whatever blessings God has given us to the Lord's service, that's a proper way to respond. That, of course, Hannah and Samuel are unique. None of our children are called to be the final judge in the Israelite land, soon to give way to a monarchy. But it's true, isn't it? That children that the Lord has given to us, that godly parents... They, they hold such children in an open hand, longing for the Lord to use them in his service, even if such service might be dangerous, even if such duties may cause perhaps physical harm. As godly parents want nothing more than to see their children walking in the truth. That's the greatest joy godly parents have. And sometimes walking in that truth means walking in ways that cause anxiety to rise in their parents' hearts. But it's not just children. Surely we can think of those other blessings that the Lord has given to us. And isn't it true that he's given us those blessings to be used in dedication for the furtherance of his gospel? Blessings to be used in dedication for the furtherance of his son, Jesus Christ. So respond with dedication. But mainly I want to look at tonight and the remainder of our meditation on the second part. Respond with exaltation. That's what we get in the song. Because you'll notice we're told, verse 1, chapter 2, Hannah prayed... And she said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, it's important to note the last time we saw Hannah praying, you can glance just a few chapters, or I'm sorry, a few paragraphs back in chapter one. You'd see that it was a prayer full of distress, anxiety, disturbance in the soul. Well, God answered the prayer. The blessing came. And now what is it? My heart exalts in the Lord. It's actually an original term. The verb there, exalts. We would use language like leaping for joy is what it's communicating there. And do you know how God's sovereign blessings can take troubles and turn them into the thrills and throbbing power of triumphs? Can you see any places in your life where God has done that? He's taken a trouble. And you've prayed over it and he's answered according to his blessing and now you're rejoicing in triumph. And it's right to recognize it as triumph because again, kids, you'll notice she says, my horn, my strength is exalted in the Lord. It might sound strange for a mother to be rejoicing over a child in this way. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Especially when you understand the Old Testament connotations for a horn. It does communicate ordinarily, symbolically in the Old Testament strength. Kids, you can picture it in this way, though. It's, it's a military-like term. You think of a rhinoceros. They have a large horn. They gore their enemy into defeat. That horn is raised high in bloody victory. That's what an Israelite would think about. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And you can see that the birth announcement is Ever more stunning, look at how verse 1 continues. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
I love what one commentator here says about Hannah's psalm. You know, it begins in such a way that might strike our modern sensibilities as altogether misplaced. The blessing of a child has arrived, and here comes a mother saying, my mouth derides my enemies. That's why this commentator says what she's longing for Hannah is, is a, a savior. She says, I rejoice in your salvation. She's longing for a deliverer. The commentator continues by saying, she's of the race of Deborah. A bulldog breed. Because she's doing nothing more than what we see all throughout the Old Testament. When God moves to save his people, what do they do? They sing in victory and triumph. You can think about Moses and Miriam's song in Exodus chapter 15. When he delivers his people across the Red Sea there from bondage and slavery in Egypt. They sing. You can think about the Judge Deborah in in the time period not long before this book of 1 Samuel. A great victory comes and, and Deborah sings. Great victory has come to Hannah. And so what she's doing? Singing. So that's the first of four things I want you to see here in this final section. Is that God's people rejoice in their God. When was the last time your heart was leaping for joy at something God had done for you? Something God is towards you? Something God promised to do for you. When was the last time you responded to God's blessing with exultation? But, but the text continues by telling us a few reasons really why she's result, um, rejoicing in this way. We can say, uh, secondly, that God's people rejoice because he's the righteous Lord. Look at verse 2 and 3. There is none holy like the Lord, Hannah continues, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more So very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You know, it's possible in the way she thinks here, particularly in in verse 3, is that this enemy that maybe she's deriding with her mouth and her song of triumph is none other than that other wife of Elkanah that so often mocked her in her fruitlessness, in her her barrenness. But certainly what it's uh, telling us here is that she's at least rejoicing in, in God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice. Do you rejoice in God's justice? That he knows all things, by him actions are weighed. That's good news for God's people that here on earth often deal with injustice. And seemingly righteousness never comes this side of heaven. But isn't it terrifying news to those who remain apart from Jesus Christ that God knows all things, sees all things, hears all things, And weighs them according to his scales of righteousness. God's people rejoice in the Lord. They rejoice because he's righteous. Really the bulk of this song deals with this next point. They rejoice because of his sovereign reversals. Look at verse 4 through the first part of verse 8. All of these reversals. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who have were full, hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life, brings down shale and raises up. He makes poor and he makes rich, brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
Isn't it so true throughout the Bible? What do we find the Lord doing that when it's his sovereign providence and his all-knowing might? He's reversing situations entirely. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. The meek inherit the earth. And certainly it belongs to his creative power because you see the end of verse 8. This is what Hannah's reveling in. The pillars of the earth of the Lord's on him. I'm sorry, on them he has set the world. Because students, think about the great reversals that came at the first creation. Light from darkness. Fullness from emptiness. Order from chaos. This is how the Lord works. In sovereign and surprising ways, he reverses situations. And surely that's meant to be a comfort to God's people and a terror to God's opponents. She so often is amplifying here humility over and against pride and arrogance. If you look again at verse 3, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Uh, the word there actually that RESV translates as, as proudly. You could translate it as talk no more, proud, proud. At its core, it actually means height. It communicates height, being tall, children. It's almost as though she's saying, talk no more, tall person, tall person. I remember playing a lot of times uh, soccer games when I was younger, middle school age, as boys at that age often shoot up in different sizes rapidly. You know, sometimes we'd come to a tournament and we'd look across, you know, the midfield line and think, those guys seem to be 15 or 16 years old, you know, and we're 13. And then one of the assistant coaches would always chirp in our ear, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The, the taller they are, the harder they fall. But it's a principle writ large across worldly wisdom, isn't it? The prouder they are. The higher they are raised, the farther they fall. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And maybe you look at your own life and see humility in the Lord's blessings. Maybe you feel as though he hasn't given you that much. I recognize that if we can use a metaphor of sorts this evening, that the Lord's humility keeps us as like these kind of just not terribly beautiful shrubs in the wilderness of our wanderings. But when the high winds blow, it's those tall trees that are exalted up to the heavens that take the force of the winds most strongly. It's those kind of shrubby brushes, small and low, that nobody pays much attention to, quite unaffected by cares and troubles. Sovereign reversals are on the way. He's righteous. We rejoice in him. Finally, a text would tell us, we rejoice in him because his king is going to reign. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, she says. Against them he will thunder. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Oh, we, we genuinely have no idea when Hannah would have sang this song. Uh, there are different parts that seem to be a little bit out of chronological order. And the author has put them together in a distinct way for us to read them in the order they are. But, but what's striking here about verse 10 is something at the end that is not present in Israel, yet something, or namely someone, 
over whom Hannah is rejoicing. Because you notice again, he will give strength to his king. There's no king in Israel. Exalt the horn of his anointed one. There's no anointed royal monarch in Israel. Hannah thus is singing about something that is on the way. And even makes sense of what Elkanah said to her. Glance back to verse 23 of chapter 1. Hey, we're going up to Shiloh, Hannah. She says, well, I'm staying home until Samuel's weaned. He says, okay, do what seems best to you. Look at the end of his quote there. May the Lord establish his word. Now, if you have eyes to see, the Lord hasn't spoken any word to this point in the book. What's the word that Elkanah says Yahweh is going to establish? Surely if you put the pieces together, it's that covenant word of grace towards his people in his covenant of grace that the nation of Israel will be a nation blessed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So there must be a leader coming who's going to bring blessing upon this people that blessings would go to the end of the earth. You know, as the weeks of December continue to pass by, what you'll find in many Christian homes Christian churches throughout the world is people reading, people even singing another song of another mother that we often refer to as Mary's Magnificat. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you know that Mary's song is utterly dependent upon Hannah's psalm. The echoes are altogether striking. Both mothers are praising and rejoicing in the Lord because he provided a child. Both mothers are rejoicing in covenant provisions of grace. Both mothers are rejoicing in sovereign reversals. Because Hannah knows, in ways we don't entirely understand, but it's clear according to the text that Samuel is going to give way to God's king, which soon enough in the chapters of this book is going to be who? King David. Because if you glance back to verse 9, here is The simple truth, writ large as the theme of the book, for not by might shall a man prevail, but by God's power. And what's the quintessential story of God's power prevailing over man's might in the Old Testament, but the soon battle between David and Goliath? In so many centuries in the future, what does young Mary pray for? Rejoicing in, praising God for, that David's true and greater son has finally arrived. And once again, he's going to bring salvation to God's people. Not by human strength or human might, but by a weakness that confounds the world and still brings salvation. So if you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the greatest blessing that anyone could ever receive. Receive him in a way that your life is now dedicated to him. That your heart is now exulting in him. That your troubles might now become triumphs. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to be a people that knows what it means to rejoice always, no matter our circumstances and situations. Lord, help us to be earnest in prayer, expectant always with fullness of faith and trust that we might wait patiently upon you and your providence to bring about your promised blessings, that we would be faithful stewards of what you have given to us, 
obedient always as we look forward to the coming of our great King of Kings, in whose name we pray. Amen.